Well, good morning. It is uh, great to see you guys. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. We're going to be uh, in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read the first few verses, uh, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump into this. The writer of Hebrews tells us chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. Pray with me. Father God, we give you great thanks uh, that you are an unseen God. And yet even in, in our inability to see you, and even in our inability to prove you to others, Lord, I thank you that you have not left yourself without witness. That even in creation we see your miraculous power. Um, that even in creation we see your creativity, your intellect, your wisdom. And Father, I thank you even for your word. Um, that you've left us not just with creation, but that you've revealed yourself even more specifically through your word. And Father, I pray even this morning as we open it, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would remind us of the truths that even we sang about this morning. And Father, I thank you for the chance just to have a time each Sunday where we declare the things we know and we believe to be true. And we get to do it in a form in which our hearts are moved and our intellects are challenged and reminded of truth. And, and yet in a setting and in a way in which our, our, our passions are awakened and, and, and made alive. And Father, I pray this morning that you would remind us of truth and that you would even more draw it deeper into our hearts and that it would be even more precious to us. And Father, I pray that it would impact the way that we live. It would impact the way that we view you and the way that we view our lives and that you would move this morning in ways beyond our anticipation, Lord. I pray that you'd use me however you see fit and that you would uh, meet us this this morning, um, that even in the very unfolding of your word that brings light according to Psalms, Lord, I pray that it would illuminate our minds. Uh, I pray that your word would challenge us, that it would convict us, uh, that it would call us forward, Lord. In your uh, heavenly name we pray. Amen. Uh, this past month, I've had a chance uh, to be reading a fascinating book called Born to Run. I don't know if any of you guys have landed across this book, but it, it's been fascinating to me. Uh, the author in it has uh, kind of jumped into running, has uh, jumped into training for marathons, but over the last few years, he's had all kinds of countless leg and foot injuries, and so he's begun to wonder why in the world, uh, to an activity that to the human race ought to be so normal, uh, to the way that our bodies function, why is it so plagued with injuries? And so he looks not just at his own life, but he looks at a lot of modern-day running magazines, shoe companies, and all that's done all that's being uh, provided for to, to prevent injuries in running. And yet he begins to wonder, why is there so many injuries in what ought to be such a normal and natural activity? And as he kind of walks through it, he looks not just at the modern day runner, uh, but he also begins to look at ancient day runners. W- what happened to those that were running in ancient times, in Greco-Roman times? He also looks uh, and finds in particular, he really spends a lot of his book fascinated with one people group known as the Tarahumara, who are a tribesmen group who live in the hills of Mexico that are in a sense an ancient day runner group and culture and civilization that has been in a sense, preserved in the modern time. And he looks at this group, and, and the group is fascinating. Much of their culture revolves around the activity of running. And as he looks at them, as he uh, tells a story about them, what we find is that in the 80s and the early 90s, they were also brought to America, and someone found them, discovered them, and brought them, and included them in a ton of ultra-marathons that occurred in Colorado. Uh, you may not know this. I didn't realize this until reading the book, but there are actually ultra-marathons that are 100-mile marathons, all right? I thought 26 sounded wretched and horrible. 100 just sounds un- inhuman, right? Uh, but these guys compete in this thing. One of the most famous ones occurs in Leadville, Colorado, where, frankly, very few people finish the 100 miles because it's through the Rockies. Um, and actually, not only do very few people finish it, but some will even die as they fall off cliffs, as they die of hypothermia and pneumonia, just wretched, horrible running conditions. And yet these Tarahumara people not only finish these races, but year after year, they dominate these races. And what really captures his attention, what captured my attention as I was reading the book, is that these people, this people group runs in nothing but a thin leather sole strapped sandal, all right, that ties around the ankle and then ties up around the calf, and that's all they run in for 100 miles, all right? 
and he's fascinated by them. And so he begins to look back even over the history and knowing and looking, uh, historically speaking, at what were the kinds of shoes that men and women were running in throughout the ages. And what he begins to find is that with the rise of modern day running, from running magazines to marathons, to this popularity and the whole industry that revolved around it, also came the rise of a lot of our shoe companies, Nike, Adidas, New Balance, a lot of the ones that we love and we adore and that we wear, right? And what he concludes and what he, where he kind of lands his book, it's got a definite agenda, is his theory that really much of the modern day running world and much of the shoe companies that have emerged from that day and time and the popularity of running have created and designed and sold you and I shoes that actually are more harmful to us in running than helpful. And actually his conclusion as he goes through it is that technologically speaking, what these shoes are doing in trying to provide us comfort and actually trying to prevent injury and prevent incorrect running styles have done more harm than good for you and I. In fact, in their desire to provide comfort and their desire to prevent incorrect running styles, they've actually changed what ought to be a natural, normal running style for you and I. And even in providing comfort, have so changed our running style and in particular have so weakened the muscles that surround our foot arch that what we were naturally and how we were naturally designed to run, you and I can't do anymore. And what's really fascinating as you walk through this book, and a lot of you guys may have seen this, especially in our college setting, uh, is the rise of those five-finger Vibram shoes that uh, some people are starting to wear. Uh, I think it's not a coincidence that it's coincided with this book because the idea being is that these shoes have created an arch support for you and I that has actually weakened the natural muscular abilities of our foot that surround our arch and the bridge that was built so that you and I could run for long distances. And that as those muscles have weakened, so has our foot and, and our legs become more and more prone to injury. The book's really fascinating. He walks not just through shoe research, but he's got medical opinions and he's going all over the place. And and the narrative of the book itself is just fascinating. But as I was walking through it, I thought it was a great picture in many ways for what the writer of Hebrews has been trying to do throughout this book. The writer of Born to Run is trying to enable and find ways for runners to run long distance without injury, uh, efficiently and quickly. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do for you and I and for the believers that he's writing to is trying to find out how to make these believers and enable these believers to run long distances, spiritually speaking, so that they can remain faithful to Jesus Christ for a lifetime. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to find is that there are some issues with the way that you and I approach a few things in particular. In fact, if you guys were with us uh, this past week, we looked at an incredibly challenging passage at the end of Hebrews chapter 10, where we found that the writer of Hebrews was pleading and challenging his audience to continue to press on faithfully with Jesus Christ. And in particular, he began to motivate them in light of the rewards that were going to await them for their faithfulness, and also in light of a judgment that they could avoid if they just pressed on faithfully. We ended last week kind of quickly highlighting three critical resources that the believer had that were going to enable him to persevere in faith over a lifetime. Particularly, if you guys remember, those three resources came uh, in chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. In particular, what we saw was that for the believer in Jesus Christ, he has a faith, he has a hope, and he has a love. He has a faith, a hope, and a love, and those three critical elements are key in his ability to persevere for a lifetime. It's no coincidence that as we finish out this book this semester, chapters 11, 12, and 13, is that these three chapters are going to mirror and expand those three elements. Chapter 11 is going to be all about the faith of the believer in Jesus Christ. Chapter 12 is all about the hope of the believer in Jesus Christ. And chapter 13 is all about the love of the believer in Jesus Christ. And that these last three chapters are going to be really the most practical part of the book as it unpacks for you and I what enables us, what are the resources that you and I have in order to press on to know Jesus Christ. In particular, I think faith is really one of the most critical muscles in our spiritual life. It it is a muscle in the sense that it has uh, strength and it has stamina to not only endure 
pressure and weight, but also to have stamina to endure over a long period of time. And yet I think for many of us, our faith muscles are incredibly underdeveloped and weak. About a month ago, I I jumped into a a round of pickup games, basketball-wise, with some of our interns and some of our leaders, and I had run up and down the court about three times, and I was absolutely completely winded, all right? Um, So I began to figure out how can I conserve my stamina and my energy and not run and hide out so as to not be exposed and eventually show up on the side of the court hurling, all right? And so that was kind of how I had to deal with it. But I think for a lot of us, our faith, our spiritual muscle is a lot like that, all right? It doesn't take a lot of adversity for our faith to be crippled, for our faith to be weakened. Maybe it's just one bad day for you. Maybe it's a series of things that don't particularly go according to your plan or according to your expectations. And all of a sudden, our whole view of God is rattled and shaken. All of a sudden, he maybe isn't so good. All of a sudden, maybe he isn't so sovereign. And all of a sudden, maybe walking with him isn't so worthwhile because our faith is weak. Our faith doesn't have a lot of stamina or it can't bear up under a lot of weight. And so really what Hebrews chapter 11 is going to be all about is how do you and I strengthen our faith? Our faith, if it's like a muscle that has strength and has stamina, how do you and I strengthen that muscle? How do you and I, in a sense, allow it to gain more stamina? That's really where the writer of Hebrews is going to take us this morning. But he's going to take us through uh, and really uh, one of the most famous chapters in the book of Hebrews. In fact, kind of walking back through it more carefully and slowly this, this week, I was really fascinated because there's things I was pulling out that I'd never seen about this chapter before. In particular, a lot of us know it as the great hall of faith. We're going to see in chapter 11, the great heroes of our faith from the Old Testament, men and women who had incredible faith. And yet, even as we walk this morning through even the first half of this chapter, one of the things that really grabbed me this morning was that some of the selections of people, in particular the way that the writer of Hebrews and God, therefore, are going to depict them is really contrary to what I think a lot of what we saw of their lives in the Old Testament. Particularly, we're going to see Abraham, Sarah, Noah. We're going to see men and women who apparently had great faith. And yet, as we watch their lives in the Old Testament, and they weren't men and women that I always thought or I would have always depicted as having great faith. And yet, what we're going to see is that what, what happens to them over the course of their lives and the way that God is going to look upon them, at least as we kind of walk through and we see in this morning, I think brings great inspiration, great encouragement, no matter where you and I are this morning. And as we kind of go through what we're going to see in particular this morning as we begin is that faith for you and I defines us. Faith defines you and I. Notice with me verses one and two. The writer tells us, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. I've walked through the book of Hebrews once before. I I taught a small group through it. And for years now, I've always been kind of befuddled by verse one. Uh, What is the writer of Hebrews saying about faith? How is the writer of Hebrews defining faith before we're going to get and talk about how it defines you and I? How do you and I define faith? particularly the way that he describes or explains faith has always been a bit peculiar to me. Notice he says it is the assurance, or some of your translations may say it is the substance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Verse two, for by it, the men of old gain approval. Notice verse three, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Verse three has always kind of been more traditional to me that faith is that belief in that which God has revealed in what either happened or will happen. And it is belief that I cannot prove, that I cannot demonstrate, uh, that in some cases I've not even experienced, but it is just a confidence, it is a belief in what God has revealed and that it either has happened or will happen just as he said it would. Verse three really fits that for me. Verse one, though, has always been a bit peculiar to me. What is he saying about faith in verse one? Faith is the assurance, or some translations say the substance of things hoped for. So it is something with regards to the future. The second half of verse one, it is also the conviction of things not seen. And even as he describes verse three, I think faith refers to not just eternity past, but it refers to eternity future. 
It refers to that part of history that you and I never experienced, but yet which the biblical record has given a record to for you and I that I cannot experience, that I cannot prove, but I take at what the revelation has said that it's true. That as God has revealed it, I believe it to be true. But notice he says, in particular, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Some of your translations may translate that it is the substance of things hoped for. In particular, that word, that Greek word there is the same word that gets used of Jesus Christ in chapter one, verse three. If you guys remember all the way back to the first Sunday of the fall, which I know you don't. Uh, But ultimately, really what the writer of Hebrews said then was that Jesus Christ is the substance or he is the exact nature of the father. Even though you and I cannot see the father, Jesus is the substance or the nature or the assurance of the father. And what we were saying then, it's the same thing what we're going to say now in that, let me give you guys an analogy about I think what he's saying faith is like. Imagine a completely blank canvas that's in front of you. And imagine you've been tasked with uh, painting or creating some kind of portrait or picture. And yet if you're anything like me and I'm not the most creative type, what I need is some kind of outline to begin to paint the, the borders of and then to begin to fill in the color for so that I can see exactly what's going to transpire. And a lot of what a lot of people do, and even for the big conference that happened this, ma- uh, this past weekend, Masterpiece, uh, they had this incredible verse written out on uh, uh, this tin deal and, and had uh, some uh, graphics to it. And what had happened was someone uh, projected uh, with a transparency on a projector, projected up onto it and then painted, outlined, and then colored in uh, the picture in the verse, all right? In many ways, what I think Jesus Christ is, is he is the transparency that is projected for you and I, a picture of who God is, right? He's provided us an outline that the Father fills the gaps in. Even more so, the same kind of way as what faith is. Faith is, in a sense, a projection onto a canvas that gives you and I and the world a picture of what is, even though you and I cannot see it. What God has said, that which you and I believe, that which we have faith in, is unseen. Whether it's creation or whether it's what God will do in the future, you and I cannot see it. And yet faith, what you and I believe, is the projection onto the empty canvas that God will one day fill in the gaps, color in, and paint, and show the fullness of the picture. And that faith is not just the outline for you and I, but it's also an outline for the entirety of the rest of the world. That as you and I believe, as you and I have faith in what the revelation of God has told us, not only does, uh, do you and I get a picture of what's coming, but also the world does as well. Which is why I think it's really fascinating. Commentaries have said that the willingness of Jews and Christians to suffer for the undemonstrable, astonished pagan observers. As the first century church walked with Jesus Christ, as they uh, often in many cases, like the book of Hebrews, this church suffered for Jesus Christ. It was their confidence in faith, what they believed was going to be true in the future that gave the world a picture, a testimony, a, a, a canvas outline of what was coming in the future. Our faith is that outline of what God is going to do in the future and what he's done in the past, that one day all we'll see as God colors in and fills in the gaps. That's what faith does. Faith outlines, faith defines, and then therefore those who possess faith are defined by it. In particular, notice verse two, he says, for by it, the men of old gained approval. What does faith do? I think faith outlines or it highlights it is the substance or the structure of what God is going to do and it pictures for the world. But for those of us who have faith, for those of us who've trusted in Jesus Christ and their faith, their belief is being filled in the gaps and shaped by what God has revealed to us through his word. Those kinds of people are defined by that faith. In fact, we're going to give a few examples in verses four, all the way to five verses four and five of a couple of examples of men who were defined by their faith. But notice in particular how they were defined and notice whose approval they received. Verse four, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. As you look at verse four, who did Abel receive the approval of? 
I think primarily and initially, of course, he received the approval of God. His faith made him approved before God. He offered a sacrifice in faith that God was who he said he was and that he would receive it and do with it as he said he would. But even in particular, notice what happens to Abel's faith. Not only does it bring the approval of God, but it also brings the approval of man. Notice how Abel's faith defines him before man. It says that uh, he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Abel's testimony was heard by who? It's not that God needs to hear that testimony, but that testimony was proclaimed to you and I, which is why through faith, God is, even though, which is why through faith at the end of the verse, Abel, though he is dead, he still speaks. Who's he still speaking to? He's still speaking to you and I, which is why Hebrews 11 is a testimony of his faith to you and I. His faith defined him before God and it defined him before man. The next example, verse five, Enoch is another example just of that. Notice he says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up for he obtained the witness, whose witness, who heard the witness, that before his taking up, he was pleasing to God. Ultimately, he received the approval of God, but he also received the approval of men who have heard the witness of Enoch through the scriptures, all right, through the Old Testament, even through the New Testament. Their faith defined them before God and it defined them before man. That's why he resums up and he says in verse six, notice he says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Notice, uh, fundamental of the spiritual life, that in order to please God, faith is absolutely required. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you're trying this church thing out, if you're trying out spirituality, if you have a lot of questions, notice the fundamental starting spot in order to please God is always faith. It has nothing to do with how you and I live, all right? That ultimately, in order to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, in order to, to be assured forgiveness of sins, it has nothing to do with how good we are, how well we do, how obedient we are. It has everything to do with the faith we have in one who has gone where we could not go and has died a death that we could not die. That ultimately, Jesus Christ died on, the, on a cross so that he could forgive our sins. And by belief in the death and the resurrection of him, we have forgiveness of sins and we have eternal life. It is by faith that we please him. And for those of us who have made that decision, for those of us who entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we don't begin by faith and leave faith behind, all right? Faith is always how we receive the approval of God. It's also how we receive the approval of man. In fact, as you go through James chapter two, a really challenging passage, part of what I think James chapter two, the second half of it is talking about is that the faith of Abraham, the faith and the obedience of of the person in James chapter two was about the approval of man as well. That faith brings about in a testimony, not just before God, but before man. So obviously one of the obvious questions for you and I is what do people, how would people perceive our faith? What kind of testimony do we have before men and women today on this campus in this community? What would people think about what we believe by the way that we live? Ultimately, I think as we look at verse six, though, what's really fascinating to me is that uh, verse six affirms one half of what I think he's been saying in verses four and five. He says in verse six that without faith, it, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, you and I cannot have approval before God. I think it's, it's one half of what he's been saying in verses four and five, right? The other half of what I think he was saying is that faith brings about the approval of man. And yet there's an obvious tension for you and I, right? In our culture, in our day and time, our faith usually does not bring the approval of man. It usually brings criticism. It brings condemnation that you actually believe God created out of nothing. Are you a lunatic and are you crazy? You actually believe that one day Jesus Christ will return and it'll give and set up a kingdom. Are you, are you crazy? You actually believe that one day you're going to die and that your body will be resurrected and glorified and made new, free of disease, free of sickness, free of death. Are you crazy? That for you and I, our faith does not bring the approval of man today, right? And so what the writer of Hebrews is going to do really from verses seven and on is begin to talk about why that's the case. 
why faith actually does bring the approval of man, but when it does and, and why it does, and actually what faith then does before men in verses seven and on. And what you're going to find is that it actually initially does not bring honor before man. <laughs> in fact, what faith usually makes us seem like is crazy, confident people. Crazily confident and certifiably insane. All right. That's how our culture views those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, who have, who have built our life and built our faith around what the scriptures have said. This doesn't translate in our day and time. And people either think we're crazily confident or they think we're certifiably insane. And notice how the culture viewed uh, the examples of the men and women that, that the writer of Hebrews is going to bring up. And I love the examples he brings up. Look at what he says about uh, Noah in verse 7. Notice how crazy Noah probably seemed. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, and reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. <laughs> God told Noah, hey, a flood is coming. I'm going to judge and wipe out the entirety of the earth. And so what I want you to do is I want you to build a gigantic boat that can hold two of every species. And then a big storm is going to come. And then all the animals will get in your boat. And then they'll glide all over the earth. And then the waters will recede. And then all the animals will come out and you as well. And you're going to be my new Adam and Eve. And I'm going to start all over with the human race and with creation with you. Right. You know, imagine him building that boat. Imagine people walking by as he quits his job and he's working on this boat. People must have thought he was just nuts, right? In fact, not only did they think he was nuts, but they also thought not just that he was trying to save his world, but they thought he was condemning the world. Notice he says, by which he condemned the world and therefore I would assume the world condemned him as well. His faith made him seem crazy to those that were walking around. And yet I think he seemed crazy and he only endured that. He only responded in faith and in obedience to the Lord because he was so confident of, of God's promises and so confident of what God said. Notice he says, and, and therefore Noah became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith, heir, future inheritance. He was so confident of the future that he endured and did the crazy in the present. Because he was so confident that what God had said he would do. Uh, I think Noah is a great example of that. And I think Abraham, who's going to come next in verses 8 and 10, is an even better example. I think to the world that was watching, Abraham must have seemed even more off his rocker. All right, even more certifiably insane. Notice what the writer says of Abraham in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. All right, uh, if you guys remember the story from Genesis or even uh, as we first get it in Acts 7, apparently God comes in Abraham uh, when he's living uh, in his homeland. He says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave your family, everyone you know, and I want you to go to a land that you won't know about that I'm not going to tell you about, but I want you to just leave and then we'll figure it out where you're going later, all right? Uh, right. In fact, the first time we find out is in Acts 7, he hears and he doesn't respond. And then when we find God speaking to Abraham in Genesis 12, it's the second time God has showed up to Abraham and he's still with his family and he's not completely left and gone to where he's supposed to be. And God shows up to him again and says, hey, buddy, here's what I want you to do. We're going to leave your family and we're going to go to a place that you don't know just to go just leave. All right. Uh, this past weekend, uh, not this past weekend, the week before we got to go to Austin and, uh, we were there for a weekend and, and my parents were watching our little girl. We kind of got a date vacation away. All right. Had a great time. But before we left for Austin, I had the GPS, uh, in the car, uh, battery powered up. All right. I have Google maps printed off my hotel location. Uh, the restaurants we're going to hit up because we're big foodies. We love restaurants. All right. Um, I, I, I don't go anywhere without knowing exactly where I'm going. All right. And it's not just because I'm male. All right. So, uh, for you ladies. Okay. Um, we don't leave and go anywhere without knowing, right? God tells Abraham, I want you just to take off from everything that's familiar to you to a place that you have no idea. And I'm not even going to tell you where you're going. I mean, how, how does he know 
which direction to take off on, all right? He, he must have seemed crazy, okay? Even more, my favorite in Genesis story is, if you guys know the story from Genesis 12 to about 21, uh, later on in the story, uh, finally Abraham does take off and he's, and he's walking off, but Abraham was not his original name. His original name was Abram, which means my father is awesome, okay? Uh, so one day, I guess his father Terah was thinking he was all high and mighty and decided to name his son in light of his awesomeness, okay? That's literally what his name meant, Abram. My father is great. Well, in the midst of God walking with Abraham, God comes and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to change your name from Abram to Abraham, all right, Abraham, which doesn't seem like a big deal to you and I, but what God was asking Abram to do was to change his name from my father is great to I am a father of a multitude, all right? God had told Abraham, I'm going to give you not just a land that I'm going to send you to and let you find, but I'm also going to give you a, a, a host of, of descendants. And yet at the time, Abraham was in his 90s, all right? way beyond childbearing years, okay? And his wife was the same as age as well. And so here's Abraham being told to change his name to, I'm going to be a father of multitude in his 90s, all right? Imagine how that must have gone, all right? He's sitting at the dinner table. The dude says, hey, Abram, can you pass some lamb? He says, actually, it's Abraham. And the guy's like, dude, you, you, you're 90. You don't have a kid. And we've been doing this for a while. I, and that's ridiculous. You're, you're kind of insane, right? That, that probably didn't go very well. I, the only thing I could think about was when I was in junior high, face full of acne, walking through a campus and someone's like, hey, what's up, Trey? I'm like, actually, can you, can you call me man of perfect complexion? I mean, it just doesn't, just didn't fit then. And it wouldn't have fit Abraham at the age, right? He's in his nineties and he's asking people to call him father of a multitude. Uh, you don't have to look far. You don't have to think hard for that just to seem crazy, right? Um, even more so, Notice what happens in verse 9. He says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Uh, he takes off and he's going to go and he's going to live and dwell in a foreign land. He's a foreigner. He's an alien. He's a uh, sojourner, a traveler. He's an international visitor, okay? Um, so uh, some of you guys have traveled overseas before. If you've been to Europe, this won't connect to you because when you go to Europe, the only real difference between Europeans and Americans sometimes is just that we wear tennis shoes and white socks, all right? Not a big difference. But if you've ever been to Asia or somewhere completely different culturally, uh, you know you're a foreigner because people just stare at you, all right? And I've, I've told you guys stories of that from the time that Marcy and I lived in East Asia, People would stare at us. I have a lot of arm hair uh, in that part of the world. There's not a lot of body hair. And so people would come pet me. All right. Um, I, I've I felt like a zoo animal at times. All right. Just really, I mean, you stick out. All right. But now imagine Abraham in a foreign land being stared at, petted, and then having to tell these foreign people, hey, I know you think I'm weird for being here, but I'm going to own your land in just a matter of time. All right. Uh, it'd be like me being in East Asia saying, hey, laugh all you want people, but this place is mine in like 10 years. All right. Not going to happen. People thinking I'm crazy. Right. It's exactly what was happening for Abraham. People must have thought he was insane. Right. And yet he was crazy because he was so confident of what God was going to do in the future. Notice again, he says in verse eight, he was going after a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, a future possession. He was so confident of that God was going to fulfill his promises to him that he, he willingly went out. In fact, he says in verse 10, he went out, uh, he was looking for the city which has foundation, whose architect and builder is God. He was so confident of what God was going to do because God was the creator, he was the designer, he was the sovereign Lord and master over all of human history. And so he was willing to do the crazy because he was so confident of the future. In fact, as we kind of transition, really to me, the surprise of this passage comes in verse 11. Uh, As we're kind of walking through, yeah, I, I probably would have picked Abel. I probably would have picked Enoch. We're kind of trucking chronologically. I probably would have picked um, Noah and I would have picked Abraham, but the last person I would have picked to make this list was Sarah. In fact, I think the writer, uh, the author might've been a little bit sheepish as well, but notice what he says in verse 11, by faith, even Sarah, (laughs) 
herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Why does Sarah make this list? (laughs) If you guys remember the Genesis narrative, uh, not only does Abraham have his problems, uh, and we'll talk about those in a minute, but Sarah is the one who, when she heard what God was going to do, didn't believe in faith, didn't consider God faithful. She laughed in God's face. All right. She thought God was insane and so was Abraham. And yet here she is and she makes Hebrews 11. How did she get included in here? As I was kind of walking through, I was thinking this week, this seems a bit of revisionist history, all right? Not that the writer of Hebrews forgot the Old Testament or that uh, he missed a story in Genesis, but maybe he's kind of tweaking things. Uh, If anything, he's grading on a serious curve here, all right? Uh, How did she get in this list and how did she get depicted this way? Uh, Sarah considered him faithful who had promised. In fact, I thought even more particularly, how did Abraham get depicted this way? We're going to find a little bit later on in this chapter that Abraham is going to, the writer is going to say that he never wavered in unbelief. Again, did the writer miss the Old Testament? (laughs) Did the writer miss the story of Genesis? Twice we have God coming to Abraham and Abraham basically disregards and tells God to bug off. Twice we have Abraham actually lying to other foreign leaders about his wife, saying that his wife was his sister so that he could save his life. That doesn't go well in the home, all right? Uh, also, we have wife impregnating a concubine. Also, not doesn't go well in the home, all right? Uh, Abraham is, is definitely not one who seems to be portrayed as one who never wavered in unbelief. So, so what is happening in Hebrews 11? <laughs> is this revisionist history? Is this just kind of forgetting the Old Testament? Is this on a grading curve? We're just really being gracious to these people who were not perfect in any way. I think in many ways, as as people have talked about Hebrews 11, I think a lot of people portray this as like some great museum of these great heroes who are just perfect, which frankly seems untouchable and seems uninspiring and seems unhelpful. (laughs) And yet what I love, especially as we come on the heels of what is a frankly a terrifying passage in Hebrews chapter 10, what I love is the graciousness and the mercy with which these uh, Old Testament saints were evaluated in Hebrews 11. I think it's about a picture. It's about a foretaste of how you and I are going to be evaluated. And as we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, it was terrifying. It talks about falling in the hands of a living God is terrifying. If, uh, if you read Hebrews 10 and you weren't a little fearful, then you missed the point of the passage. Yet I think it gets buttressed or it gets, it gets balanced out really well with Hebrews 11 because what we see is that as God, and particularly the New Testament author here, who I think God is controlling and leading as he writes, as God is evaluating his Old Testament saints, it's not that he's valuing on a grading curve, but he's evaluating based on where these men and women arrived and not their journey per se. As you looked at Abraham's journey, it is like a roller coaster of faith, all right? There's moments that he's on the top of it, and then all of a sudden we Geronimo all the way down and he sells out his wife, all right? I mean, there are moments where he's awesome, and then there are moments where you're like, dude, what are you thinking, man? Like, you just sold God out and your wife. Did you, did you just miss what he did? I mean, he just showed you the stars, said, hey, that, that's going to be your descendants, and now you're scared that you're going to die because of an Egyptian king. What's the deal here, buddy? And what I love as you look at Hebrews 11 is, is that the writer is depicting and, and you're seeing God evaluate them mercifully and graciously based on where they arrive, not necessarily on their journey. Notice he doesn't evaluate them based on where all they've been, their bad moments, but he evaluates them based on where their faith reached and how their faith grew and mature. So really kind of as we think through this, uh, the question for me as we looked at Abraham and Sarah, as we watched their faith grow is how does our faith grow? If, if he's evaluating them based on, on how they arrived, then how do you and I arrive? How do you and I continue to grow and to build our faith? There are a few things I want to highlight. One is that you and I embrace setbacks, all right? As you look at the Abraham narrative, as you look at some of these stories, as they walk through the rest of the book of Hebrews, these men and women uh, had great faith because they had great challenges. 
Uh, in many regards, I often thought through as I looked through Hebrews 11, I'd love to have the faith of these men and women, but I really don't want their challenges. If I have to go through their challenges to get to their faith, sometimes I've thought, eh, I think I'll just kind of have it easy, right? And yet I think for us, the reality is you and I can't avoid challenges. You and I can't avoid setbacks. You and I can't avoid difficulties. You and I can't hide out. Our faith is going to make us a target. It makes us a foreigner in the day and the world that we live in. And so in light of those moments, in light of the times that we have setbacks, in light of the times that things don't go according to our plans, in light of the ways that our hearts are broken, I think those are great moments where our faith actually can grow. It is in those moments that our faith grows. It is in those moments that we begin to really trust God as to who he is, despite what our circumstances say. So I think in the midst of those places where you and I are groaning and struggling, it is in those places that our faith grows. It is in those places that our stamina is built. And so you and I ought not to avoid and be disheartened by those moments when they arrive. But we ought to try to see them as best we can in the midst of the struggle as an opportunity, an opportunity to continue to trust the Lord and therefore to exercise our faith. That in that gym, so to speak, you and I begin to build our muscles of faith and we begin to build our stamina of faith. In particular, I think there's a couple ways that you and I do that. One is we do it through his word. That it is his word that is the record of what he's revealed. It is the record of what will occur and what has occurred. And it is the reminder to us of the truth of God. We sing this morning, every morning, as a verbal declaration of what we've believed and is what we ascribe to be true of who God is and what he's doing in the world and even his value to us which is why it's not just a verbal movement of our mouths, but it is a move of our heart as well. Not just declaring certain things to be true factually, but declaring that he's our, he's our prize, that he's, our worth, uh, he's worthy of our worship, he's worthy of our lives. And that it is through his word that we get the most normative means to be a reminder of those things, of what the truth is of God that is often contrary to our circumstances and contrary to what life feels like at times. Life often goes contrary to what the word of God has said. And therefore the word of God is our anchor. It is our measuring stick to be as a reminder of truth. And yet our lives and our circumstances and our experiences are not to be disregarded. I think sometimes another great way to build and exercise your faith is not just through his word and knowing his promises, but also as you journal of his work. I think as you look through the Old Testament, you look through the saints and the nation of Israel, one of the things they did really, really well that I think sometimes we as a Western culture don't do as well is acts of remembrance, all right? They were a culture, maybe because of it being so oral, that was often retelling the stories of what God did throughout their history. I think for you and I, we are so fast-paced at times, we just move on to the next thing and we spend very little time reflecting on what we've seen God do in our life. Very little time reflecting on the ways that we've seen God move. And so he moves and we move on to the next struggle, the next request. And we, don't, we miss how he's already moved in the past. I think much of Israel's confidence in the future was built, not just on what he'd revealed to them, but also what they had seen him do in the past. It was his faithfulness. It was his work in the past that had built their confidence in the future that therefore enabled them to be crazy in the present and to obey even when it seemed crazy. And so for a lot of you girls, Vanessa announced this this morning already, but I thought it was a great tie-in. Uh, also, this is our only Sunday to announce this women's event that's coming up on March 25th. It's kind of, for this spring, a women's retreat kind of thing, but it's not actually overnight and out of town, but it's right here in our midst on March 25th when you guys return back. And uh, a couple things. One, it's all about, uh, you guys see the title, Something to Say, The Power of Your Story. It's all about wrestling with and, and hearing other stories, but also wrestling with how has God moved in your life? What is God's story in your life? Not just a story through the scriptures of how he's moved, but how has he moved, transformed, freed you? 
And how is that relevant in the culture that you and I live in? How is that relevant as we declare our faith and declare him to be true? It's a great chance. Also, it's just a great chance for you college girls to connect with some adult women. I know uh, most weeks, uh, a lot of times I hear students wanting to get connected to adult families here. They want to look for a mentor, look for someone to connect with. And I'll tell you, it's hard just to kind of arrange it. But in moments and events like these are a great chance to connect with some older women in our church, to hear their stories, to know what God is doing in their lives and for them to hear you and, and get to know you as well. And so if you're looking for a chance here at Grace, to connect with some families and to move outside of just the college world. That's a great moment to do that. And a great moment also just to recount God's work in your life. How have you seen him move and how does that build and exercise and strengthen your faith as you move to the future? The last thing I want to challenge you guys as you think through this is that you'd extend to yourself the gospel of grace. All right. Uh, what I love about the story of Abraham and Sarah is that it's a bit redemptive, all right? Uh, what we see is that God was incredibly gracious to them in their failures, and yet he was using their failures. He was using those moments of ashes to resurrect and renew it and to bring change in their life. In fact, that's the reason why I put it the gospel of grace, because that's what the gospel is all about to begin with. That day and that moment in time when our, the second person in the Trinity, Jesus Christ, was crucified on a cross to stand as our substitute for our pain and for our sin and to take the penalty for our sin upon himself. And yet that moment of those ashes, that struggle, was not the end of the story. Three days later, as he resurrected, he showed he had power and authority over sin and death, and therefore sin and death could not hold you and I. And I think for many of us, uh, in the midst of the failures, in the midst of those places that we've been, those become moments, training ground moments, where we learn even better the character of God, even more his faithfulness to you and I, even as he sticks with us, even though we are at times faithless to him. So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you're coming off a weekend, you're coming off a week or a semester where you really feel like you've just bottomed out. And that if you're on the roller coaster of faith, you feel like you're in the valley of it right now. You're not at the pinnacle. You're not in one of those high glory moments. And even if that's the case, I think even in those places, not to condone it, but even in those places, I think God is teaching you, God is training you, God is shaping and building your stamina and your confidence in him as to who he is as he remains with you and remains faithful to you. And as he renews, as he transforms your lives and begins to move you back up. That even in some of those hard moments, even in those places that we've sometimes fallen short, I feel like they're great places where God is still at work in us. And that it's not the end of the story. It wasn't the end of the story for Abraham. It wasn't the end of the story for Sarah. And it's not the end of the story for you and I. So I don't know where you and I are this morning, but I want to call us and challenge us to continue to press forward and that our faith grows as we continue to walk with him. Our faith grows even in those hard moments. Our faith grows as we see what he's done in our life and as we hear what he's done in others. I think one of my favorite things to do that's one of my favorite faith builders is reading missionary biographies. Um, over spring break, I'd highly encourage you, the time that you have, uh, redeem that time, all right? Uh, I think sleeping until 11 is wonderful. Uh, I highly encourage it. Uh, but when you finally do wake up, uh, do something other than video games, all right? Just a suggestion. Uh, take that as you will. Uh, but spend time in the Word this spring break and, and find a book. Find a, a missionary biography. For me, those are some of the best faith builders I know. Um, finding stories of how God worked in some people's lives, people who trusted him, people who made themselves available and what God did way above beyond their anticipation and mine. At least for me, especially over spring break, it's one of my habits and I highly encourage y'all to do that. Uh, or just to spend some time journaling even over spring break. Hey, what has God done this semester in my life? Even in those good moments, even in those hard moments, how have I seen him move? And do I have any awareness of what he is doing? Whether, or am I just moving so fast at times? Am I running on to the next test, the next thing, the next study, the next group, the next event that I've really missed? Um, some really significant ways that he's moved in my life, moved in my roommate's life, moved in my family's life, and taking some time to reflect on that and then even to praise him for those things. And I think even in that exercise, your faith begins to be built, it begins to be grown, it begins to be uh, strengthened, and so that you continue to press on. We're going to see in chapter 11, even as we come back from break, faith is one of the key elements that allows you and I to endure and to walk with Jesus Christ, faithful and devoted for a lifetime.
How strong is your faith this morning? How can you be growing it as you walk even into spring break? And then the last thing I want to ask you guys is, uh, for those of us, for the strength of your faith can at times, I think, be seen by the craziness of your obedience. <laughs> the strength of your faith at times can be seen by the craziness of your obedience. I want to ask you, uh, as God calls and he presses upon you, at times, are you willing to respond? Are you willing to have courage and go at times, whether it's across the room or whether it's across the country or whether it's um, across even uh, a kitchen to your mom, your dad, even over spring break, and tell them, hey, here's what God is doing in my life. Here's what I'm seeing even to a family member that you know is going to possibly respond with shock and awe. I want to challenge you this morning, even as you go back from spring break, to, to respond faithfully and obediently, even when it's crazy, and that as your faith is strengthened, he's going to call you to even greater things and continue to step forward. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that the cross was not the end of the story. I thank you that with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we all got proof that you are victorious and that you are sovereign over life and death, over sin and disease. Um, And Father, I pray that as we come to you, the risen one, Lord, I pray that you remind us of your sovereignty, of your strength, of your resurrected power, Um, the same power that you've put within uh, those of us who know you, the same power that redeems us from sin, that transforms our lives. Father, I pray that you would begin to grow and to strengthen our faith, that you would give us a greater reminder of who you are through your word. Pray that you give us time to slow down even over spring break to be reminded of all that you've done on our behalf. The ways that we've seen you move, I pray that you would blow us away, that you kick us back on our heels and that we would be challenged afresh and then even to move and, and to tell and to speak of that which we've seen you do. Father, I pray that you would draw others to yourself through that, Lord. Father, I pray that you draw us closer to you and that you would allow even the spring break for our faith to be grown, to be strengthened and to draw nearer to you and to know you even more, Lord. Father, we ask for these things through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning and we'll see you guys after spring break on the 27th. Y'all have a great break and a great week.